Welcome to Recruiting for Government in the Digital Age panel discussion, sponsored by LinkedIn. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guests are Ellen Ardry, the Associate Director for Support at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David Schlendorf, the Assistant Director for Human Resources Division at the FBI, Cynthia Miller, the Chief of Human Resources and Chief Human Capital Officer for the National Security Agency, Dr. Robert Smith, the Director of the National Recruitment for the Customs and Border Protection in the Homeland Security Department, Angie Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer for the Homeland Security Department, and Michael Cerrito, the General Manager for LinkedIn's Government Practice. Welcome to the discussion today. Before we get started, let me set some context for our discussion. Only about 42% of federal employees answering the government-wide survey say they are satisfied with how their agency hires people with the right skills. And when you dive down into the specific agencies, the news doesn't get that much better. The National Science Foundation and NASA are at the top end of that satisfaction spectrum at 61 and 57% respectively, happy with who they have hired. On the other side, there's a host of other agencies stuck in the mid-30% areas, such as DHS, Treasury, SSA, and Agriculture. The dissatisfaction is only made worse when you look at the time to hire employees. The Obama administration launched a, a goal in 2010 to reduce how long it takes to bring down to bring in new employees to 80 days on average. Nearly eight years later, OPM reported just last year that the time to hire remained at over 100 days, and unfortunately, it is creeping up. OPM has tried to address many of these systemic challenges by creating direct hire authority for critical skill sets, just as doctors and nurses, as well as cybersecurity and IT modernization workers. And then there are th authorities like Schedule A, where an agency can hire a specific skill set for a term appointment of usually two years. The U.S. Digital Service, GSA's 18F, other digital service organizations throughout the government has used this authority to bring on staff quickly. But using special hiring authorities doesn't solve the broader problem of recruiting the best employees. The ongoing challenge drove the Trump administration to make improving the workforce a cross-agency goal of the president's management agenda. The workforce goal under the PMA focuses on three broad areas, including creating a simple and strategic hiring process. The sub-goal has six different objectives. Among those are improving the ability to differentiate applications, qualifications, competencies, and experiences, and even adding hiring process automation. So in the meantime, while the PMA leaders, OMB, DOD, and OPM get going, what can agencies to move beyond the post and pray approach and develop a st strategies to be more proactive, strategic, and data-driven? How can agencies, hiring managers, and chief human capital officers adapt to the changing demands of the modern talent acquisition landscape in order to build the federal workforce of the future? Well, luckily, that's where our panelists will come in and tell us how they're going to do that. Once again, my guests are Ellen Ardry, the Associate Director for Support at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David Schlendorf, the Assistant Director for Human Resources Division at the FBI, Cynthia Miller, the Chief of Human Resources and Chief Human Capital Officer for the National Security Agency, Dr. Robert Smith, the Director of the National Recruitment for the Customs and Border Protection in the Homeland Security Department, Angie Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer for DHS, and Michael Cerrito, the General Manager for LinkedIn's Government Practice. Okay, Cynthia, I laid out all the problems. Tell me how you're fixing it at the NSA, right? What are you guys doing? What What is your, if you will, recruiting strategy look like online, in person, all of the above? Okay. Well, first, we do not have a problem recruiting for no. the NSA. NSA has a, is the best. Thank I'm just, you. Sorry, guys. I'm just going to tell you there. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so we use a lot of different venues uh, to include extensive recruitment on campuses, uh, colleges and universities. We also have a lot of referrals from uh, employees internal to NSA, people who've retired from there, others who are familiar with our unique mission. Uh, we also have our online tool called the Intelligence Community Applicant Gateway. It's an amazing tool. We've partnered with NGA and have plans to partner with other uh, agencies within the intelligence community where and potential applicant can apply online to either of the 17 agencies potentially, which has proven to be very successful for NSA and NGA, NGA to date. So we use a lot of different other mechanisms and also we uh, participate in a lot of national level conferences to include those that are related to our mission in the cybersecurity arena and diversity. It's almost like uh, when it comes to NSA, when it comes to recruitment and retainment, I think your retainment rate is like 97% or something like that. Actually, 98.5. No, that's a little off. I didn't want to <laughs> okay. But it's almost like uh, uh, it's like Coke and Pepsi, right? We, everyone knows who the NSA is. Yes. So, uh, Dr. Smith, you have a different challenge. Well, everyone knows who CBP is, but you have a much different type of challenge to recruit. Talk about your approach. Well, Customs and Border Protection uses a layered approach, um, realizing that it wasn't so long ago where we were able to post a job announcement and receive hundreds of applicants and have a whole bunch of folks to choose from. 
Um, obviously, the times have changed a good bit. And we recognize that today, we have to, first of all, capitalize on what the digital marketing and advertising does for us. Um, our presence is not necessarily in all of the places where we'd want to recruit from. So the digital marketing and advertising allows us to really expand our reach. Our use of social media and job boards like LinkedIn, for example, play a big part in, in, in the success we're finding and getting to those applicants. That's the digital marketing and advertising side of it. On top of that, we have the outreach piece. You, you have to get out and do the outreach. Folks have to know who you are. It helps to expand your brand. And believe it or not, even with an organization like Customs and Border Protection, not everybody completely understands the brand. They don't realize the mission of, of, of safeguarding the American, America's borders, and they don't realize that we also facilitate uh, and, and enable trade and travel. We need to make sure they understand that piece. A lot of folks may know a little bit about the law enforcement side of it, the frontline side and not completely appreciate the mission support side of it. So uh, the way we address that, we do as well, visit college campuses. When in fiscal year in 17, we attended over 3,000 events. Uh, we too also realize the benefit of our referrals. We find that just for fiscal year 18 alone, over 20% of our applications are coming from employer referrals. Uh, and uh, our veteran population, uh, CBP is very proud of the fact that 30% uh, of our employees are veterans. Uh, so we know that that is obviously a great place to, 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 to go after applicants, people who are job seekers. So our partnerships with the DOD installations, the TAPS offices have yielded great uh, return for us and we're even expanding on that as, as we speak. So It's interesting you bring up the branding piece because a lot of people think of CBP and go, well, they just stand on the border all day. Right. But the trade and travel is huge and I think people lose sight of, of that mission area. Is that probably the, the biggest challenge you guys have is getting people to say, hey, we're more than just right. the people who sit, stand on the border all day. Right, and, and, and a lot of folks don't realize that you know, there are so many opportunities that are, that are available. Right now, we have over 150 positions under trade. You know, we're looking for auditors, and, and those jobs exist not just in a single location, but from Miami to Boston to, to, to Long Beach. Um, and I'd also say, you know, it's funny because a lot of people don't realize the full mission. Uh, the fact that we were all able to bring mom flowers on Mother's Day had a lot to do with our agricultural specialists and how they clear the imports of something like flowers. So there's a lot that people don't understand about our organization. I think I think that's a issue for CBP, but I think I think a lot of people in government, except for NSA, but they're, they're, se they're separate. <laughs> awesome. Michael, talk a bit about LinkedIn uh, and, and what you've just heard early on so far, but you guys really have t changed the way recruiting is done over the last you know 15 or, or so years, or however long it's been since you guys launched. I think that, that the idea of going to LinkedIn to find people, I don't know, I can't, um, I think it feels like everybody does that, at least to start. Uh, Certainly a fair assessment if you look at corporate <laughs> America. Um, I think 100% uh, of Fortune 100 companies are on LinkedIn as a, as a sourcing tool. Um, the folks at this table are kind of the leading edge of a lot of the changes in government, so that's great to see. Um, when we look at the world of recruitment, we've seen the last 15 years, as, as somebody mentioned, has really been defined by passive candidate sourcing. right? And that's been getting in front of people that aren't already thinking about you as a, as a place to work, um, getting into their consideration set. We look at the world today and we kind of say um, there's a couple things going on that create a different reality. Um, we live in an era of unprecedented levels of open information. Um, and if you think about like what that means in the talent acquisition world, the recruitment world, uh, if I'm a candidate, I've basically got access to any company and any job uh, and frankly any person that works at those companies anywhere in the world almost instantaneously. Uh, likewise, if I'm a recruiter or any of your recruiters, um, they have instant access to any talent all over the world. Uh, the reality is most corporate recruiters, they all have access to the same, um, same profiles, same tools like LinkedIn or whatever it might be. Um, so we think we're, you know, passive candidate sourcing is still table stakes, but we think we're in this era where the technology and the information that's out there um, is changing the game. And now it's not just enough to kind of know where these folks are, right? Know what schools or what companies they work for, but it's about getting in front of them at the right time with the right message uh, in a way that's gonna increase your chances um, of getting them to respond. Because uh, I think underlying all of this is uh, just truly intense levels of competition for talent right now. I think that's a great segue to Angie, who is facing those in, in, uh, intense challenges because of the competition for cyber as one example, but you guys obviously, as Robert said, CBP and others. Talk a little bit about DHS's broader perspective of talent acquisition. 
Well, one of the things that we're really finding is that within DHS is that our mission is a huge driver for folks to come in. And so recruiting for folks to actually want our jobs, in many of the cases, we're up to like thousands of applications at one time and we're actually trying to figure out ways to like, how do we actually cut it off so that we can even humanly manage the number of folks that are interested in our positions. And that's a wide range of our positions. It's not just the ones that are, um, really well-known. The super sexy ones. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It goes on to even, you know, an HR specialist job, for, for example. And so um, what we found, though, is like, and I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but it's like then getting them through the process and making sure, because our jobs, most of our jobs require a clearance. Many of them are top secret clearances and, and higher. We have polygraphs, like in CBP's case. We have medical exams, physical exams. So there's a whole lot to our process. And so one of the things that we're actually starting to venture over into is this idea of, it's not just about recruiting them, but then how do we do applicant care? So how do we help the applicant get the whole way through the process so that we don't lose them? Because there's a whole lot of quality folks out there um, that they'll hang with us, you know, they understand it takes a little bit of time to get through, but they just, I think they just need us to pay a little bit more attention to them. So that's just one of our new approaches that DHS is starting to take. I like the term applicant care. We're going to come back around to that, but I want to jump, uh, talk to David from the FBI first. You uh, maybe similar to the NSA. Branding is probably not your challenge. Well, it's interesting. For a long time, I think we did the post and pray that you talked about, and Hollywood was our best recruiter. Uh, <laughs> but. The FBI has changed pretty dramatically in the last 20 years, and as Robert mentioned, and I think as Cynthia mentioned, there's a lot of jobs in the FBI that people don't realize the FBI does, whether that's psychologists or nurses or forensic accountants or a whole host of other career opportunities in the FBI. So for some of our jobs, the branding really helps, uh, although that also can be a little bit of a detriment in certain communities. One of our big challenges in the FBI has been diversity uh, recruiting, and so in some minority communities, law enforcement or security is not always seen as a career to aspire to. and so. We have to take advantage of the brand where it helps us, but also in some cases overcome the brand, or in some cases, Robert was alluding to, really educate people about all the different opportunities that are on the FBI. And so we've used all the mechanisms that Cynthia and Robert and uh, Angie talked about, got a much larger social media presence today than we had a few years ago. LinkedIn's a big tool for us, but YouTube, Twitter, uh, Facebook. We benefit from having a field office structure in the FBI, so we've got a field office in every major American city, 56 field offices across the country, and then another 350 satellite offices in smaller towns and cities. And so that's our forward deployed workforce, and they're our best recruiters. Every office has a full-time what we call recruiter or applicant coordinator whose job is to be doing the community outreach, uh, getting out to the universities, getting out to the different trade associations in their area of responsibility. And one thing that's also been a big change for us uh, is trying to get much more involved, learn from the NSA, uh, get much more involved in academic programs. Uh, so we bring in over a thousand interns across the FBI every summer, uh, and that really we look at that as a ten-week interview. It's a great chance for us to educate people about the FBI who will go back to campuses and be great recruiters for us, uh, but also a great way for us to interview people for ten weeks and really make sure they have what it takes to come into the FBI. And very similar to DHS, you guys are fighting for the same talent around cyber. That's a huge upswing in the number of people who uh, the FBI has brought in around cyber experts because of how it's grown. Uh, so it's it's getting those interns in early, obviously, is, is a great step. Uh, Ellen, NGA, you, we started with the intelligence community on this end with Cynthia. We're going to end of this, this first segment with you. Talk a little bit about your recruitment side, because it's different than the NSA and different maybe sure. from some of the others we heard. Sure. Uh, we take a hybrid approach, right? We still do the in-person. Uh, there's no substitute for that, but we have an increasingly robust online uh, recruitment. Many of the things that you've heard um, talked about already, um, LinkedIn is a, is a great source for us. We do a lot of active recruitment of passive candidates. Um, and unlike some of the others at the panel who are talking about um, rebranding or um, trying to change the brand, NGA doesn't have a real robust and we're, we're increasing our presence. We've had um, tremendous success in bringing in um, new occupations that we would not traditionally have recruited for. Um, and I think this online presence is, is very helpful. We're working very hard on a relationship, deep, um, persistent relationships with trade 
uh, associations and also with academic institutions. And they, they are providing not only the skill sets we want, but also the diversity that we seek. And so we've changed our recruitment strategy a little bit where we are recruiting in advance of attrition. And so we have a very robust pipeline that is already through the many wickets that um, Angie had talked about and I know Cynthia is also challenged with. And so they're ready as soon as a vacancy occurs and we can bring them on and that's been very successful. For us. I want to talk just a little bit more about an advance of attrition. Are you looking more at the retirement wave that, that agencies are facing? Meaning we have, pick your number, 30% of all our, sure. our employees are, are eligible to retire, so we know a certain number will retire every year, or are you thinking more about there's just natural turnover that you've seen over the years? Both. Both. Right. And we have, um, uh, we've looked ahead five, seven years, and we know that the um, the kinds of occupations that we're going to need for our mission are changing dramatically. So we've even had a very aggressive incentivized um, retirement uh, program over the last two years. And so we're replacing that talent. Angie, you were shaking your head too. Are you guys also looking at that same strategy about looking ahead three, five, seven years? Yeah, no, absolutely. So data is king here, right? <laughs> and so we, we take all the data that we can possibly get and we look at it. We even take all of our recruiting events. We know how much money we're spending, where we're spending the money, where which avenues that we're using, whether or not that they've been successful or not. So we can really make sure that we kind of get a return on our investment when it comes to the recruiting events. I wanted to, if you don't mind, just touch a little bit on this idea of so there's this whole world of digital recruiting, right? But one of the things that we really found with DHS, because we've tried some of these virtual events, because what you'll hear is that the millennials really just want things virtual. But what we've found with DHS is we're like a house of brands, you know, a house of multiple brands. So we created these joint hiring events where we brought, for the first time ever, uh, it was two years ago, we brought all of our components together and we said bring in every cool toy that you have bring in your dogs from CBP right bring in your firing ranges bring in your FEMA response vehicles bring in TSA's um, you know what they do to get folks through the airports uh, Secret Service bring in the beast right the president's limo we brought in everything we had like people like lined up around the corner to get in to really just see and experience and feel what DHS is really all about and so sometimes you can't recreate that in a digital experience so I think while digital recruiting is effective uh, what we found is that this whole in-person touch feel um, smell everything else about it is what really draws them in I think it's a great example we're gonna take a quick break and we come back I saw a bunch of you with data we're gonna pull on that string a little bit you're listening to the panel discussion recruiting for government in the digital age sponsored by LinkedIn on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM With over 550 million members worldwide, LinkedIn connects the world's professionals, making them more productive and successful. LinkedIn works with over 100 federal agencies, helping them to modernize their talent acquisition efforts. LinkedIn helps agencies build their employer brand, engage new pools of talent, and implement modern data-driven recruiting strategies. Learn how LinkedIn can help your agency. Visit business.linkedin.com. That's business.linkedin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Recruiting for Government in the Digital Age, sponsored by LinkedIn on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Ellen Ardry, the Associate Director for Support at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David Schlendorf, the Assistant Director for Human Resources Division at the FBI, Cynthia Miller, the Chief of Human Resources and Chief Human Capital Officer for the National Security Agency, Dr. Robert Smith, the Director of National Recruitment for the Customs and Border Protection in the Homeland Security Department, Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer for the Homeland Security Department, <clears throat> and Michael Cerrito, the General Manager for LinkedIn's government practice. At, at the end of the first segment, Angela brought up this idea of digital recruitment's awesome, but there's something about in person. I thought, Angela, your, your example of bringing in the cool toys, the dogs, the limos, the, the emergency response vehicles gives people a better sense. So Michael, jump in here a little bit since you guys are all about the digital side. There's a, there's a human aspect too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, bringing your assets on site and letting people touch and feel is, is a great way to create engagement and a true feel for what the, the organizations do. Um, we often refer to um, recruiting as a marketing process and candidates as going through something that looks like a marketing funnel. 
And so I think oftentimes what's, what's I wouldn't want to say these things are mutually exclusive, but sometimes what is missing are you know, proactive and strategic efforts to see the top of that funnel such that different uh, talent pools are arriving at those events, right? So a lot of times what we see is these events are sort of driven by the same or tended by the same ecosystem of candidates that tend to have an interest in, in public service, which is good. Um, but I would say that that shouldn't be mutually exclusive from doing things to see the top of the funnel with candidates with the skills that you're interested in that just might not already be, be thinking about um, DHS or CBP or whatever it might be. So what, what you're basically getting to is this idea that <clears throat> if I'm interested in, in DHS, I may attend that. But if I've never really thought about DHS as, as, a, as a career or as a job opportunity, I may you have to reach me somehow, and that's where the digital side. Right. Recruiting is a, is a full funnel marketing activity in this day and age. And uh, you know, Google has a famous study that says something like 70% of a purchasing decision is made before a consumer walks into a store. And the way people make career decisions is exactly, exactly the same way. So um, the point I was trying to make is that you have to do things such that the people that are walking through your career fair door aren't just that 60% that were you know, already thinking about you. In radio, we call them the P1s. We want to get the P1 listeners, but we also want the P2s and 3s. So Ellen, talk about the in-person events and how you guys are getting those P2s and 3s. Oh, fantastic. So we actually use our building and our facility as part of our recruitment. We bring candidates in and we put them through a whole day um, of uh, as many contacts with employees as we possibly can. We use our employees as our ambassadors and uh, recruitment and I think often, uh, you know, an individual has to has to see themselves in that environment and see that this is a comfortable um, culture for them. And so uh, we've had a lot of luck in a day long um, experience, immersion experience for our candidates, and an, an opportunity to expose them to the wide range of missions that they probably didn't realize um, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency offered. Let me, let me bring in David or, or Cynthia, either one. How do you guys balance that? Because the average person can't just come into the FBI or just can't come into the NSA and hang out for the day. Uh, um, and then maybe, Robert, you can jump in on this because you can't just go to the border and hang out at the border all day either. So I don't know if David or, or Cynthia, you guys, either one? So, yeah, just like Cynthia. Ellen, we have uh, events that we schedule. And we actually recruit at the schools to bring college kids in. We even have a high school work study program. We have events where we introduce uh, our our missions, those that we can, because these people aren't cleared, right? right. So, but things that we can do, and we have people come in. We have guest speakers who talk with uh, the respective groups, and we also have guest speakers a lot who are external. And that's the way that they're introduced. And we see those people as uh, centers of influence who can take that back to their respective company, their respective college, university, whichever venue from which they have come. So we do a lot of the same sort of recruitment initiatives that Ellen described. And what we do with, um, we have an NSA Cyber Day as well. And we have people that we bring in for mentorship who we have I don't want to say targeted, but we have actually recruited for those purposes. And we say to them, we take pride in saying, remember when you leave, you've seen something that most of America will never see. That's a great point. David? Yeah, I think Ellen's point is key. I mean, showing them the real FBI, bringing them into the FBI so they can feel what it likes to work in the FBI. So we use our field office uh, locations I talked about. So every agent candidate, every intelligence analyst candidate will come in, have what we call a meet and greet, where they'll be sitting with real FBI agents, real FBI intelligence analysts to really get a sense for what's the job really like. Because you think you understand what the job is like, but of course, not of course, many people don't actually understand an FBI agent job is not the same as a police officer. It's very different, in fact. Uh, FBI intelligence analyst job is not exactly what Hollywood portrays it to be. And even if you're coming in to be a nurse or uh, an accountant, Come in, see what it's like up at the FBI. Only 60 or over 60% of our workforce are not agents. So people think the FBI is agents, uh, but that's the point of the spear. It's who the rest of us are here to support, but it only represents about 37% of our workforce. So that other 60 plus percent is key to have them understand there are different careers and they can come see themselves in the FBI. So whether you're a school teacher again uh, or a scientist, there's something the FBI has to offer for you, but we have to convince those people and they have to kind of see themselves in a different way maybe. And if nothing else, both the NSA and the FBI have really interesting museums slash showrooms that I've had little looks at. That that's in itself in and of itself is worthwhile. Yeah, we just recently opened our FBI experience actually at headquarters. 9/11 unfortunately had to close down the FBI tour, and only in the last year or so do we really reopen in a big way. So like the White House, people can go through their congressperson to get a ticket and come in and really learn about the FBI. All right. Robert, talk about the opposite challenge that you guys have is, again, you can get people to, to understand all the things you guys do, but so much happens in the field. 
getting them to experience the the CBP, you know, jobs and opportunities. How do you guys deal with that, the in-person side? Well, for, on the recruiting front, you know, as uh, Angela Bailey mentioned, uh, there are DHS large events where you bring in all of the components of the department to participate in these active events. But I, I guess a, a deeper question is what does the data show us as it relates to these events? Are we getting the return on investment from outreach? Are we getting the return on investment from digital? Um, what we're realizing from taking a look at the data, there are specific places we can go where we can be successful, and we allow that data to drive our actions and, and drive our direction. I mentioned uh, earlier about the DOD and, and, and us engaging at the TAPS offices on the, the DOD installations. Data tells us that we're very successful there. So what we've even done is partnered, again, with the military basis and said, hey, we'd like to put some recruiters there within your TAPS offices. So as your folks are coming through, as they're planning their transition, they have access to a real live recruiter on a daily basis. We currently have uh, two that are permanent. We have several, up to six that are rotational. But we're in the process now of establishing MOUs and making it more of a permanent up to 10 bases that we've identified that we believe we can get a good return on. So we realize that there's a, a great benefit to that, that touch point. My background is military recruiting. I was in charge of Coast Guard recruiting before I came here. And what I learned in that role was that outreach is key. Being a part of the community is key. And folks, as much as the, the digital way is, is a great way to reach folks, uh, people want to sit kneecap to kneecap and talk opportunities. And quite often, you're not just recruiting the individual, you're recruiting their families. Um, you're creating centers of influence. So it goes beyond even just the individual recruit. You want to make sure that you've convinced their family you know, that you're going to take care of them. So it goes beyond just uh, the digital into a, a deeper touch and even beyond the, the candidate. Angela. One of the things I was going to say, kind of pulling the thread of what Robert was talking about is, and using our data, one of the things that we've really looked at is uh, from a diversity standpoint, especially within the law enforcement community, we've been actually looking at what does it tell us, and one of the things it tells us is that we really could do a much better job of having women in law enforcement. So we actually are going to have a women in law enforcement event uh, coming up in June down in Texas and you might say to yourself, well, why Texas? Well, use the data again and find out that that's where the vast majority of female veterans are located. That's where they retired to. Second thing is, is, as you can imagine, that's where the bulk of our hiring is. So, but to follow that up then, what we've done is, it's not just about going to Texas and having an event, right? We've actually created webinars, which might seem like a little bit of old school, but what we've done is with these webinars is we're doing a day in the life of a CBP agent or an officer, day in the life of a ICE criminal investigator or a um, deportation officer, et cetera. And so those day in the life have been widely attended. We'd have over 6,500 um, folks who have actually signed up for our webinars. And the staff, I mean, bless their hearts, they don't even stop when it's over. They'll be there till like 10, 11 o'clock at night answering basic questions about how this crazy hiring process really does work. <laughs> um, you know, how long is it really going to take? What about my family? just every question that you can imagine and so it's it's about generating an interest but educating at the same time and then making sure that we create an experience for them when they get there that's worth their time um, and their patience uh, to be able to come on board with us. Michael jump in. Um, David do you mind if I talk about some of the work we've done? No, that'd be great please. So <laughs> since you, uh, you brought up a great topic which is uh, changing the gender mix and in, in law enforcement mm -hmm. and um, and letting data sort of be your guide on that. We, we did a really interesting exercise with the FBI on their job postings. And I think everyone here will probably agree the whole job announcement thing is, is, a, is a prickly thing to navigate. Um, but the FBI said we would like to get more female uh, applicants to our uh, law enforcement roles or special agent roles. And we did some A-B testing and tweaked some things. Uh, we basically made two primary changes to their job postings. Um, on the title, we appended it with the skill set that they might want. So it would say special agent slash education or special agent slash finance. And then we uh, worked with them to change the description and it went from a description of the job to a description of the skills that you needed to be successful in that job. And those two shifts, I don't have the study in front of me and I could share it with you if you're interested, but those two shifts increased engagement and application rates by females by about 4x. And I think it, um, you know, it's a dramatic change. And so I think oftentimes, I yeah, oftentimes <laughs> we, um, we, you know, take for granted that, well, job posting is what it is or job announcement is what it is. And there are restrictions there. But um, really interesting um, 
exercise there. And a lot of what we see this in other areas too. For example, if you have a job posting that says ninja is like something that people like to put in the private sector, that's a cool thing, you're a development ninja. Um, words like that tend to uh, reduce the amount of um, women applicants. So um, things that you can do to tailor, uh, tailor things like job posting to drive more women applicants. Ellen, jump in. Yeah, so um, at NGA, we have made similar changes, and uh, we've seen that that has dramatically changed the demographics of those that are applying and are interested in NGA. We have a really robust um, uh, student internship program, and much like FBI, you know, it's a job interview for 10 weeks. They're trying you out, we're trying them out. But what we found through the data, um, interestingly, is that the schools that we had traditionally partnered with and that we uh, knew about us and were attracted didn't have the demographics that we needed. Demo, uh, you know, a diverse candidate pool is a mission imperative for us. And so through the data, we found that um, if we had relationships with different schools, uh, we would have a dramatically different candidate pool. And we've seen um, last year our interns were um, almost 50% diversity, uh, minority, and uh, well over 50% uh, female, which was a very different mix than we had seen in the past. And I think it's, um, it's an understanding that the NGA mission, unlike many in the Department of Defense Intelligence community, has a um, first responder and an emergency response, and that plays well with a certain demographic, and we've had a lot of success there. I think that's great. I think the data piece, as you guys are kind of describing how data in, in, impacts the, your, your ideas, that's to me maybe the biggest difference today than three, five, seven, ten years ago. David, you're shaking your head. Just maybe jump in a little bit more about the, the, the work you guys did with LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, the work with LinkedIn has been key, and really everything we've been trying to do in HR for the past several years in the FBI has just been data-driven. If you look at what the private sector firms are doing, they're really running HR based on data, and so we've had to build up a big team of people that are just good at reporting and analyzing data. We've really had to work on our back-end systems to get clean data uh, so we can better measure these things, because everything from the recruiting stats that Ellen mentioned to the kind of modeling the attrition that was mentioned earlier so we can kind of get ahead of that whole process, because like our partners here at the table, our hiring process is very rigorous, many gates to jump through and then a full rigorous top secret background clearance. So being ahead of that uh, is key. Things like the female recruiting for us also, just using the data and we think being transparent with the data is key for us across our workforce and a lot better reporting so that our managers are kind of held accountable to targets across the nation. Uh, in the FBI, I'm sure it's similar. There's a lot of competition. It's a very type A workforce. So you put the targets up there, no one wants to be read and have the director see you're the 56th worst office on female recruiting. So you know, there's different ways to get people motivated around this and David, data is key to all that. And Cynthia, talk maybe also the NSA's perspective, uh, very similar to maybe what Ellen says, talked about the N N NGA, you guys also are looking for a diverse candidate pool, but uh, you, you maybe tend to get men, you tend to get a specific type of, 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 of candidate. How are you guys ensuring that the, the, the aperture widens? Okay, so data is a huge force multiplier in all aspects of recruiting for us as well. And so um, we are primarily focusing on the people with a STEM background, so that's one of our challenges is ensuring that we recruit those critical skills, the same ones that everybody else is looking for. <laughs> and of course, for us, the competition is um, um, financial from the stand the competitor I say from the standpoint of we can't offer the same salaries so we have other uniqueness that we can offer that money cannot buy i.e. things that are inherent to the mission of what we do so we focus sort of on that as being a predominant dominant buying motive for uh, a select type of people but we've also though been very successful in getting approval to give uh, special salary rates for specific very unique critical mission related skills, so that we've been successful in. And when it comes to diversity, we have a lot of targeted events to ensure that we reach those markets that we need most. We have a goal of about 33%. We're very close to achieving that this year. Women is great. Uh, we've exceeded that goal in excess of 40%. So our primary strategy is geared around uh, diversity and the STEM work roles. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back. There's plenty more to talk about. You're listening to the panel discussion, Recruiting for Government in the Digital Age, sponsored by LinkedIn on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM.
With over 550 million members worldwide, LinkedIn connects the world's professionals, making them more productive and successful. LinkedIn works with over 100 federal agencies, helping them to modernize their talent acquisition efforts. LinkedIn helps agencies build their employer brand, engage new pools of talent, and implement modern data-driven recruiting strategies. Learn how LinkedIn can help your agency. Visit business.linkedin.com. That's business.linkedin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Recruiting for Government in the Digital Age, sponsored by LinkedIn on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Ellen Ardrey, the Associate Director for Support at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David Schlendorf, the Assistant Director for Human Resources Division at the FBI, Cynthia Miller, the Chief of Human Resources and Chief Human Capital Officer for the National Security Agency, Dr. Robert Smith, the Director of National Recruitment for Customs and Border Protection in the Homeland Security Department, and Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer for DHS, and Michael Cerrito, the General Manager for LinkedIn's Government Practice. In the last segment, we talked about data and how data is driving so many of the decisions and, and the efforts. The other piece, I think, that's related to the data is this, these flexibilities that have, I think, come up over the last, you know, they've been around for quite a while, but I think that there's been a more focus on hiring flexibilities. Uh, let me start with Ellen. You guys are doing some things maybe that, that are taking advantage of those flexibilities, whether it's the one that, that you get from the Intel world or just more generally the government-wide world. Right. Um, so we do uh, take advantage of a lot of those. We are in something that's called accepted, accepted service, um, like many in the intelligence agency. And so we do, uh, we take advantage of a lot of the flexibilities that you mentioned in your opening remarks. We have term and temporary hires. We do direct hire authority. We have um, uh, retention, recruitment, relocation incentives. We have something called highly qualified experts um, that we can bring on that allow us to um, uh, offer salaries that exceed the normal um, pay scale. And so we're taking advantage of all of those kinds of flexibilities at NGA. Is, is, the, is the flexibilities piece, and let me turn to maybe to a civilian agency side, so maybe Angela or, or Dr. Smith, how big of a role are they playing? Are you, are you being looking at the flexibilities more and more and more, or is it just a tool in the toolbox? Maybe start with Angela and then... I mean, that's a really good question, and I, th I think it's a combination of two things. One, we definitely look at the flexibilities that are out there. So take, for example, our joint hiring event that I talked about. If it wouldn't have been for the direct hire authority that we had for cyber, that would not have been the success that it was. I mean, bottom line. But we also look at things that are on the books now, like the veterans hiring authorities. In some ways, you can look at those as almost being kind of like a direct hire authority of veterans, uh, if you know how to use all those different hiring authorities. Um, but then we combine that with doing things like just getting creative and saying to ourselves, there's millions of resumes sitting on USA Jobs today. Why don't you go in and mine those resumes and pull out the folks that actually you know, have the requisite skills that you're looking for and then reach out to them and see if they're interested, see if there's any veterans that are on there that you could apply a veterans hiring authority to and then actually interview them and bring them right on board. So I think we're just, I think we're getting smarter Right, we're not just falling back on the same old traditional hiring authorities that we've always used, and we're figuring out that there's, I think there's over 102 different hiring yeah. authorities on the books, so pick one, right? And find one that works for you, and then make that happen. That's a great point. Soon we're gonna have only special hiring authorities, and no one ever will be hired under just the regular program. Dr. Smith? Just to foot stomp what Angela said, uh, we absolutely use them. They are tools for us to access and, and need. Uh, the, the VRA plays a big role in what we're doing. Um, and what we're finding is that because our target is so heavily on the veteran side, those are the VRA is one of the, the tools that we use quite frequently. Um, I think a, a, a deeper conversation uh, is also, so now that we identify that we have these authorities, what are we doing to draw those individuals in? What are the types of incentives? What are some of the things you're trying to address to make sure that you're drawing people to your organization and agency? Not just the fact that you have the authority, but what do you use to pull them in as well, like incentive programs? And, and Cynthia. Yeah, so to foot stomp all of what Ellen said, especially because we have the same authorities, two that are very, very successful are the um, temp hires from the standpoint, we ha they're referred to as SAR, which is Standby Active Reserve, and SIR, Selected Employee Reserve. And with the SARs, they can, an individual can get 800 hours a year to come back and help augment a staff and or continue 
in a job they held previous, previously at NSA and or something they had not done, but certainly have the skills and the background to be very effective to help us in those specific mission areas. And with the SERVs, the Selected Employee Reserve, they can come back for five years, work full time. They aren't limited by the hours per year and uh, they too are more specialized in areas where they may have worked. So those have proven uh, to be extremely productive with transitioning as well as augmentation. And, and it's interesting, 800 hours, I'm not very good at math, <laughs> 20 weeks? So it's 800 hours and you, the employer right. can choose, and yes. However you do it. However they, on weekdays, how you, yes. How you, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and this idea behind this is somebody who may be retired, it's almost like the phase retirement piece yeah, that yeah, civilian needs to retired from uh, NSA and then they come back with those skills that we still need that they may or may or may not have already uh, uh, provided, but they certainly have the expertise that we need. So it's, it's not a free fall, no. it's very selective. And David, from the FBI's perspective, are you guys also looking at either A, bringing back retired agents or retired experts in some way, or is there another set of hiring authorities? Uh, no, we, we have a special authority we call the Reserve Service Program to bring back retired agents, uh, and so we use that selectively for people with uh, special skills or places where we've deemed it an emergency that we can't lose those skill sets they have. So we've used that pretty broadly uh, in the last three to five years and use, although we're part of the intelligence community, we're also part of the Department of Justice, we live in, special, we live in a special space, but we are an accepted service agency like uh, Ellen was talking about, so we use those same authorities. And it's, it's interesting because um, you talk about the people you bring back. If you have any old computer systems, COBOL, you know, that, that's where you usually <laughs> find those people. Uh, Michael, one of the things that we haven't maybe gotten to yet, but I want to de definitely get into is, is how the recruitment is changing the role of the HR worker. And I think that is so key because it's not just the person in, in Angela's office or Cynthia's office, but it's the, the hiring manager who says to Cynthia, hey, here's what I need here. Go find me somebody. That doesn't hopefully happen too often anymore. Talk a little about what you're seeing with your clients about how, how you're maybe meeting with different people or, or talking with different people nowadays. Sure. So uh, I think one of the, the sort of trends that's uh, overlaid this whole conversation is that you know recruiting in HR is just a lot more sophisticated and scientific today than, than, it, than it once was. And so it's not about having data and reporting on data. It's about having data and pulling insights or inferences out of that data. And I think that's playing out in a lot of different areas. One that it is happening is in uh, is in the early phase of the recruitment process, which is you know what does that interface look like between let's just say a recruiter and a hiring manager. Um, we're seeing more and more, particularly if you look at how we recruit uh, tech talent at our company. Um, one of the most important steps is not to try and boil the ocean, but to look at the data first and look at the skills that you need and actually have a little bit of a dialogue with the hiring manager to decide how loose or tight that aperture should be. Uh, because a lot of times you have hiring managers that say, you know, I need these, these are, these are, you know, must have criteria. And then you go look at the data and it suggests, well, there's, you know, four of these people out here. So, uh, and there's none in the area where you want to recruit. So I think um, being able, the skill set of being able to, you know, work with data, pull um, inferences and conclusions and insights from that is probably one of the biggest changes that, that we're seeing. Do you get a sense that the hiring managers get that, that they're now part of this process? It's not just, okay, Angela, do get, get this done for me? Do you get that I, sense? I'd love to hear from these folks. I mean, I, my sense is great hiring managers are, <laughs> uh, and that most hiring managers okay. probably don't. Let's hear from these folks. Ellen? So uh, for us, it's a combination of the, um, the recruiter and the HR manager working with the hiring manager and helping them understand a new skill set. Very often um, we talk about a hiring manager who's overworked and they're very busy and they just dust off an old vacancy and toss it over the transium and what we find is that our HR officer and our recruiter will sit down with them and try to convince them that you don't want to hire exactly what just departed, right? You've got to look forward uh, on what are the skill sets of the future. You're not replacing Bob who just left. You're looking for the Bob plus in the future. And so um, educating a hiring manager and our HR officers to think more progressively, to use the data, as Michael said, um, to anticipate what the workforce of the future is going to be and then go find that in the data. I think that's a interesting point. It's not you don't just want to hire Bob or Mary, but but what, what they can be and the what, what's really the yeah. needs are because there's been a big push from this administration to really move people away from what they call low value work into high value work, which means if if Bob has been there for 35 for 40 years and and 
maybe he was doing a little too much low value work. I mean, Angela, talk a little bit about your uh, experience with your hiring managers. How are you pulling them in with you, or how are they coming to you? Well, I, I think one of the things is, is that, in some ways, success breeds success, right? So the more that we include the hiring managers in the process, and the more that they see successful results, meaning that they get what they believe are quality folks into the into their work units, then the more apt they are to not only do it again, but to actually talk about it. And so. In addition to working with them on the front end, the other thing that we've found to be incredibly successful is to have the hiring managers be in on the end whenever the resumes are all coming in. In the past, it used to be that HR would hold that very dear and near to their heart and you know nobody got to see anything until a cert was issued. And instead, what we do now is we send the resumes out to the hiring or out to the, the folks, the hiring managers, and we ask them to look at it and tell us, you know, is this really cloud computing? or do they just know how to draw clouds? Like, we need to know the difference here, right? And then the thing that the HR office still has a responsibility for is, are they minimally qualified, the vet clearing the veteran's preference, things like that. But the actual technical skills, the hiring managers are now uh, intimately involved in that, and we're finding that it's just driving better quality uh, hires. Cynthia, are you finding the same thing? Because again, you're very very specific skill sets at NSA. You could say, I, I think I know how to hire a cyber person, but do you really? I mean, did you, are you asking your hiring manager to really do what Angela's asking theirs so to do? It's a little bit different. So on the front end, we actually determine what the requirements are. For instance, in August, we will have we will know what those are for fiscal year 19, and the way we do that is through our modeling, based on attrition, based on what we actually hired this year, and that was defined literally by the hiring managers and the mission leads for the respective mission areas. So, we are it's it's an they are an integral part to our process. We 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 are joined at the hip, so to speak. So we know exactly what we need to hire. We know how much of every single thing we need to hire. And so those goals are set and we know far in advance what they are and we target our recruitment strategy around those goals. That goes back to what Angela said, data is king here. Yes. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Robert, let's uh, jump in real quick, but let, I was gonna say, what's our takeaway? So maybe you can lead us off with some of the, the, the build on what Cynthia said and then lead us on the, on the takeaways. Well, the only piece I was gonna add is in uh, Customs and Border Protection, we use something called a skill overview assessment report. It helps us to understand what our gaps are as well as what our strengths are. Um, obviously, that then needs to feed into our hiring plans. Um, but as far as takeaways uh, you know, from, from the Customs and Border Protection perspective, great organization to work for, for which there are amazing opportunities, Speaking a large array. <laughs> that's my job. Um, there are a large array of, of both jobs and careers. And it's important that folks understand um, that there are great things that you can do regardless of what your background and skill set are. And that we're out there. We're, we're in the digital market. We're, we're at the job fairs. We're on the bases. You know, come see us. Very good. Uh, Michael, talk a little bit about the future. Where, where are we heading with, with uh, this idea of, of how recruitment's changing? Um, yeah, I think it all goes back to this idea of data and technology changing everything. Um, and I think where we're headed is, uh, you know, the world is continuing to be separated between the haves and have-nots as competition gets more and more intense. And the haves are going to be the ones that can be nimble in a you know, highly technological uh, fast-paced environment and able to manipulate data for insights and, and frankly, a competitive edge uh, in, the, in the competition for talent. Angela, where, where's, if we have this conversation, which we will, because you know I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a paparazzi for you, um, I'll give a blame Nicole for the most part, but that's a different discussion. Uh, where are you going to be you know, if we have this con conversation in a year or two from now when, when it comes where to recruitment? Where am I personally going to be? No, oh, okay. recruitment at DHS. <laughs> Unless if you have an announcement that you could break some news on us. No, no. I, I think that actually where we're going to be is um, I think that we're going to get even better at making use of the data. I think we're going to get better at how we uh, take advantage of the digital and environment. But I also think that we're going to figure out how to balance the high touch with the applicants um, that, that I think that they still so desire, right? And so I hope that where we're not at is that we've just turned everything over to this whole thing called digital world and that we forget that these are real humans behind this that, you know, actually um, just really need somebody to sometimes just pick up a phone and call them, right? And talk to them or like literally hold their hand as they're trying to fill out all their equip and all their background investigation and things like that. And so that's where I hope we are, is that we've figured out the sweet spot between the digital world and the high touch world that people still need. David? 
Well, I think just building on what Angela was saying, I think the other transformation that has to, that's already started but has to continue is just the importance of HR in federal organizations. I think you look at the private sector again, you'll see that, the increasingly important role of the, the CRO. Um, and we are trying to not only get better data, but better people and human resources that can then partner with our customers and so they can sit down with the head of counterterrorism or the head of the New York office and really understand their needs and not just be recruiting for what they needed in the past. And so it, it takes a different kind of person in HR who's comfortable not only with the data, but that can operate at a very high executive level uh, to meet with those partners on a regular basis and really understand their business so that we in HR can be ahead of their needs in a sense. So I think that, that transformation has already started, but I think there's a long way to go on the FBI, I'm guessing across government HR in general. All right, Ellen. So I'm going to pick up kind of on a theme we've talked a lot about um, online, a lot about data, but as Angela said, recruiting is inherently a person-to-person -person kind of connection, an emotional connection, and so we can't ever lose that. And I think um, also the theme that um, a candidate has, you have to remain connected with the applicant through the process until they're on board and actually even in their first year to really instantiate that feeling of um, inclusion with your organization. And so we know that the security process takes a very long time. So we have actually at NGA um, recognized people can't always wait that long and so we have um, in some of our occupations found a way to bring people on in advance of their security clearance because we don't want to lose them. So particularly our um, data analyst occupations, we bring them on and employ them while we're waiting for their security clearance. All right. And Cynthia, you get the last 10 seconds. Okay. So ditto everything all of my wonderful colleagues have said, and I will just add what we are really looking forward to in fiscal year 19 is all of the efficiencies we're going to realize with our enhanced IT capabilities that go. will come on board. All right, NGA is leading that, so Ellen, get it done, right? All right, unfortunately we're uh, out of time for uh, today. This has been a fabulous discussion. Let me thank my guests. <coughs> Ellen Ardry, the Associate Director for Support at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. David Schlendorf, the Assistant Director for Human Resources Division at the FBI. Cynthia Miller, the Chief of Human Resources and Chief Human Capital Officer for the National Security Agency. Dr. Robert Smith, the Director of National Recruitment for the Customs and Border Protection in the Homeland Security Department. Angela Bailey, the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Homeland Security Department. And Michael Cerrito, the General Manager for LinkedIn's Government Practice. Thank you all very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Recruiting for Government in the Digital Age panel, sponsored by LinkedIn on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com slash LinkedIn.